Welcome to the Rider Dojo with your host, Steve Diamond. Man, I'm really looking forward to 2024. And Larry Correa. Why, Johnny Ringo, you look like you've seen a ghost. Today's episode, Predatory Publishing. Welcome everybody back to the Rider Dojo. Larry and I are happy to have you with us again today. Um, this is our second episode, uh, or depending on how, on how you look at our last week's episode, this is almost kind of our first real topical episode of season four. Yeah, first episode of every season is kind of our recap, where we are, goals, stats, that kind of, yeah. kind of stuff. So um, I, I thought I would start out this year with this po- or with this uh, with this blog post that. Uh, or this Facebook post that, that Rothman pointed out to us the other day. And it kind of hit me, it hit me a little strong. Uh, and that's because I've, I've had some issues with smaller presses in the past. Yeah. I think we'll go through some of those tonight. You, yeah. You've gotten kind of kicked. I've times. gotten kicked a few times. Um, and it, I, I'm just going to, I'm just going to read this. Okay, this is what Rothman posted the other day. And he and I were talking about it and we were both pretty upset about it. Okay. Well, and, and, and I'm gonna and I'm and I'm gonna avoid saying what the actual presses are that this person is mentioning. X press is and always will be a traditional publisher, in that authors it publishes or republish pay nothing to have the books published. That's crazy, right? Yeah. I make whatever money I make from the sale of the books and pay out royalties as contracted. Well, thank you for, you know, doing your job. However, there is also a demand for hybrid publishing where authors receive much higher royalties on book sales, but invest up front to help make the books happen. And as well, a demand for people who offer paid services such as editing and book design for those interested in self-publishing. I'm therefore working towards establishing a second publishing company. Why books? That's not what it's really called. You, you know what I'm doing, guys. Which will use that model so I can market the book publishing and editing skills I've built up in the last while to those looking for them. I have a domain name for the website and blah, 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 blah. Okay. On the surface, I... And, and, and there were some people in the comments on this because Rothman posted this to the dojo. Um, on the surface, I think that if you're not paying close attention to the wordage he's using and you, and you don't understand the business, both in terms of what, what it means to be traditionally published and what it means to be self-published or independently published, you, look, you read this and you go, oh, okay, sure, whatever. And you move, on, and you move about your day. But this is sneaky. There's some sneaky stuff going on in here. Yeah, you know what what keyed me off when you read that? Mm. When he describes his uh, for-pay business as hybrid publishing. Yep. That's that's some weasel words right there, guys. Yeah, because you and I, we've talked about hybrid publishing in the past on the show. Yeah, because there's basically, there's two fundamental types of publishing nowadays. Right. Traditional and independent, often called indie. Traditional is old school. That's where you have a publishing house. 
and you sell the rights to your book to them who then they do all the editorial and whatnot and distribution. They grab the cover for you. They, they do layout for you. They do all that. Theoretically, they get it into stores for you and sell the book for you. And then Mm -hmm. you get paid a percentage of the cover price. Now we've had whole episodes where we've gone through and broke those down. If you guys are just joining us late, you know, it's one of our early episodes. We talk about how traditional publishing works, but in those, all the money flows to the author. Yes. And, and I think that that's one of the biggest adages, probably one of the biggest things that we can ever tell any author, any prospective author. And that's that money flows to you, not away from you. If the publisher asks you for money up front to get your book out, that is not traditional publishing. So this guy starts out, so X Publishing, his first company, mm. uh, you know, whatever. He, he says he's traditional publisher. Okay, that's fine. That's, that's great if he is. I have no idea who this person is. But then this next party says, well, and then I have this new publishing house where you pay me money to invest in your product and uh, then we'll bring it to market. And that's hybrid publishing. No, it's not. You know, independent publishing is when you are your own publishing house and you take care of the stuff and you do your covers and you do your yeah. editorial. You, you end up having, yes, you end up having to pay money out. And yeah. that's that you, you are going out and you are finding consultants who can take care of various aspects of the publishing that you can't do yourself. Yeah, you do whatever you can yourself and what you can't, you hire somebody who knows how to do it and then you pay them right. and you get what you pay for in this business. And Hopefully. If you look at like a lot of independent book covers, you'll see what I mean. Right. You know, because there's a lot of really trash indie book covers out there because they don't pay for good artists or good well, layout. And, and a lot of times you don't, you don't pay for good editing. No, I mean, and you'll see it in the product. Oh, yeah. I mean, you you and I have both read um, novels published by independent authors where it's obvious that they've contracted a good editor yeah. versus the ones that haven't. Now, that said, if you are someone who's selling those services, if you're selling your cover design, your layout, mm-hmm. your editorial services, and we've talked about these things on the show all before, that's fine. You're selling a service. That's great. Yes. Um, that's not hybrid publishing. What hybrid publishing is, is authors who do both. Yes. Um, you have authors who are traditionally published through a publishing house, and then on the side, they usually will do independent books. And a lot of times that's book that you're, it's doesn't fit your regular traditional publishing niche. You want to try something new. You want to try something different. Or for a lot of writers who've been around a long time, it's books that are no longer in print with a publishing house, and then you get those rights back once it's out of print, and you print it yourself, and you sell it to your fans. For example, um, I'm... You know, I, I write the fantasy stuff with you or for Bane, um, and I've written a number of short stories for him, and I keep doing that. Uh, but Bane, it's very unlikely that if I wrote just a straight-up horror novel, that Bane would pick it up, because they really don't do straight it's horror. It's not really their thing, yeah. Uh, in fact, they, they had a Q&A. Uh, Tony and Jim had a Q&A uh, a few weeks ago where they talked about this. And that was one of the questions that came up is, oh, will Bane ever consider publishing just straight up horror? And they're like, no, no, we we don't mind it as elements. And they brought up Servants of War specifically in that context. Yeah, Um, (laughs) there's some horror elements there. There's definitely some horror elements in there. Uh, But, you know, if, if I were to write a straight up horror novel, which I'm doing, then I would either have to find some other publisher for it, or more than likely, I just independently publish it at this point. Yeah. And that would that would make me a hybrid author. If you, Larry, if you were to write a novella about Sparkle Kittens tomorrow, then and you published it yourself without Bane's help or without Audible or whatever, you, 
that that's hybrid publishing. Technically, Brandon Sanderson is doing hybrid publishing right yes, now. Yes, because he has his own independent thing, and he actually he's kind of so big that he's actually kind of like his own publishing house. He doesn't so matter he's anymore. like, yeah, yeah, he, he's, he's a to, massive exception. He's hard to draw. He's hard to draw conclusions from. But like the guy that brought this to our attention was Michael Rothman. He's a great example. He's traditionally published through uh, Bay and Books. Time Trials is coming out with him and Dave Butler here pretty soon. Very excited for that. Uh, uh, beginning of March, right? Yeah, my wife just finished it. She said she was, she said it was awesome. Oh, good, good. Yeah. Uh, like I really like those guys. Like they are so talented. So I was reading it and I was like, man, this is good. And then my, the fact that my wife liked it, I mean, just like, cause I'm a nerd <laughs> and she's a jock and she yeah. liked it. Um, but, uh, what I would say here is like, we have these different authors that are hybrid. So the fact that this guy calls where you're paying for services hybrid, no, it's not. That's just a missed term. And, and I think it's, I think it's intentional, Larry. Yeah, it sounds intentional because what that would traditionally be called is, and I know about this actually, because of how I started vanity press yeah. is the traditional word. And a vanity press, what that means, and this is a little, this has changed with the ebook revolution, but in the olden days, you would go and you would hire a publishing house, a vanity press publisher to publish your book for you. And they would probably even charge you for, you know, cover art. You know, it's usually like a stock photo of something. Or, yeah. And then they would uh, they would print them and you would sell them. And most Vanity Press stuff, they would sell, you know, 100 copies. It would be like- If you're whatever. lucky. It, yeah, it's like maybe it's like six copies. It's like whatever you could sell to your immediate friends and family. Um, that said, when I originally self-published Monster Hunter, keep in mind, Monster Hunter came out before the self-publishing revolution. So that's actually how I printed my books is I hired one of those to print my books. Oh, I didn't know this part. Yeah, no, I hired, uh, I don't even think the company's around anymore. I think the Probably internet, not. I think the internet killed it. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, so I, but I needed basically cause back then I had no way to print, but I didn't, wasn't a normal thing. So I wasn't doing six copies for friends and family. I was doing 6,000 copies to sell to internet gun nuts. And so I was a bit different. And that said, I got some pretty good discounts on the publishing. But I also, when I did that, I knew exactly what I was doing. It was, I was self-publishing through a vanity press because this specifically was a business decision. It was the cheapest way that I could get uh, print-on-demand paperbacks back in those days. They're a lot cheaper now, but back then it was like $23. Oh, to, yeah. That was what I was selling That's these insane. things for. Well, because Monster Hunter is a 200,000-word book, so those original self-published, they're, they're, fairly, they're fairly fat. Um, but, you know, I, I, that was the business was different back then. But still today you'll have people who are like, well, I'm a published author because they paid somebody to publish their crap. Um, and now, nowadays with independent publishing being what it is, being able to sell your own stuff through Amazon, Kindle, all that kind of stuff, the vanity press doesn't really, it's not really a business entity like it was 15 years ago. I mean, it's a business entity, but it's the business ripping you off. Yeah. So now it's, it's like I said, like when I, when I use it, I definitely knew what I was getting into, but a lot of people are, are kind of suckers. They're like, I'm going to publish this book. I can say I'm a published author and it'll just magically sell and I'll make money. Well, so many people, there, there are so many authors out there. And I admit I was in the same boat uh, when I first started out that I was just so, I was so desperate, so to speak, to, to be a published author, to be able to say I was a published author. There is like that, that, that was a big deal to me. That's how a lot of these guys, the predatory, uh, the predatory types, the scam artists, because all, writers tend to be dreamers, right? They tend to be yeah. dreamers more than they tend to be business people. And so you can make them big promises and they'll be all in. They'll be like, hey, man, you pay me and I will get your book out there and you'll be wildly successful. No, that's yeah. crap. That's crap. You've got to have a marketing plan on your own of how you're going to get this out there if you're going to go independent. 
we're going to talk uh, after the break. We'll talk about traditional publishing and the the, the flaws therein too. Oh, they look. There, there's no predatory in a different direction. They are. They are. And and to be clear, um, Larry and I we're we're not bashing on independent publishers in the slightest. Um, oh no no no! Again, there's big house, small house. It, it's all house. over the place. And the thing is, at every single level of, pu- of traditional publishing, and every level of independent publishing, there is different degrees of honesty, honesty, integrity, and business acumen at every level. So there are big publishing houses where there are people there who are complete trash scumbags who will stab you in the back while smiling at your face. Uh, and there are small presses that will treat you super kind yeah. and then vice versa. Yep. Um, there's, there's sterling, honest people who with a lot of integrity and there's people who are trash. And then there's like the... Um, even in independent publishing where you have individuals who just have like their own little thing going on, there's varying level of honesty from them. I've got some horror stories and I can't talk about them on the air. I can't single out individuals, but yeah. I've seen I've seen scam artists in that. I've seen plagiarists. I've seen ripoff artists. I've seen guys who basically lie, cheat, and steal to try to get ahead. Um, it, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you, buddy. I've, yeah. I've seen some of that. You've been through I've that. been through that. Yeah. Now, Steve, Steve, I know you, you, uh, you've sold some stuff to yeah. some various presses ahead, mm-hmm. business issues. Yeah. So, so Residue is an interesting book, right? Um, it's multiple, it's been through multiple publishing been, I think this now. is on the, th- I think I'm on the third or fourth publisher for it right now. And in the beginning, uh, it was published through a place called Ragnarok. And like a lot of small publishers, um, it had the people in charge, they were good at evaluating like talent and good at seeing what was a good story, but they weren't good with the business aspect of, the, yeah. of it at all. Right. Um, uh, for, for those of you who go back a ways, there was a publisher called Nightshade Publishing or Nightshade Books. Um, very, very much in a similar vein. They were, they were excellent. In fact, Nightshade was excellent at evaluating really good books. Um, and they had, I mean, gosh, there, there's some, some pretty big deal authors who were published through them, um, whether through reprints or whatever, uh, or original stuff. Um, some very talented authors. Uh, and they were excellent at that. And man, those guys just crushed cover art and cover design. Yep. Uh, and, in, and, and so did, and so did Ragnarok when I was published with them. In fact, I, I, I really like Residue's cover. Um, and the guy who did the cover and the guy who did the cover design for it, I'm, I, I still know he's a great guy. He's actually the one that did the cover design for your, um, for your hard magic, uh, limited editions. Oh, the oh, guy who, cool. who did the cover design for it, not the art. That was Vincent. Yeah. Chung. Well, a lot of times you have these different houses that they'll have, a, they'll have really talented they have people, talent. they'll hire talent. But business is hard, guys, and this is coming from not just Larry and Steve, the writers, but Larry and Steve, the accountants. Yeah. Most businesses fail. They do. Period. Like, across all industries. Even if you're good. Yeah. Yeah, if you have a business that sticks around for a while, congratulations, you are an anomaly. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, fa- it depends on your industry, but with some, some businesses, it's like, you have a really super high failure rate. Was it like 80% of restaurants yeah. <laughs> in their first year? I mean, that's like the worst industry, but publishing houses is the same kind of thing. It's a, it's a hard business. And, uh, so one of the things guys is when you're getting this stuff, make sure that you protect yourself on your contracts. When you're signing a contract, make sure you're not signing away your firstborn. We've talked about this on the show before. Unless you don't like your firstborn, then whatever. I like my firstborn. She's a pretty good writer too. She's all right. Yeah. She's all right. She's pretty cool. (laughs) 
Um, no, but the thing is, make sure your contract has provision that you get your stuff back in the case of them, you know, dissolving, dissolving, or or, or, or the big one is when it goes out of print. Yeah, obviously, if they dissolve, it's out of print. Well, look, there. Anytime you're looking through. Uh, well, in, in the out-of-print clause that is in most contracts has a lot of specific rules within it, or it can anyway. Um, I mean, I was just thinking of of mine, uh, mine and yours contract. When ebooks complicated that too. Ebooks make it a whole different game. All the contracts that were signed pre-ebook, it just changes the game once yeah. there's that. So, but you know, look with with all the different contracts, and and we've talked about contracts specifically in the past. Um, and in fact, when you and I are, are normally at conventions together, we almost always end up on a panel talking about specifically yeah, contracts. I think we've had contract episodes too. I think we, yeah, I think we've yeah. done one or two. Um, but man, read those, read those contracts, read those clauses within the contract. Yeah. Know what you're getting into guys. And know exactly what you're getting into. Now we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, um, I want to read a comment that was on here that I think, uh, I don't want it to sound like I'm bashing on the person, but at the same time, I think it's it's been taken a little, that comment went a little too far. Well, this is a perspective thing. It's a, it's a perspective thing. And uh, and then Larry and I will start talking in more detail some of the horror stories either that we've experienced personally, like me and, and my, my Ragnarok stuff, um, or some of the ones that Larry's heard of and that, that we both know of. So we'll be right back. What part of the Second Amendment don't you understand? That's the question posed by award-winning New York Times bestselling author and professional firearms instructor Larry Curia. Me. Bringing with him the practical experience that comes from having owned a high-end gun store, and as a competitive shooter and self-defense trainer, Curia blasts apart the emotion-laden, logic-free rhetoric of the gun control fanatics who turn every mass shooting into a crazed call for violating your rights, abusing the Constitution, and doing absolutely nothing to really fight crime. In his essential new book, In Defense of the Second Amendment, Curia reveals... Why gun-free zones are more dangerous for law-abiding citizens. How the Second Amendment does indeed include your right to own an AR-15 and why that's not an outdated concept. Why red flag laws don't work and can be easily abused and ignore a much more commonsensical approach to keeping guns out of the wrong hands. The insanity of criminal justice reform that frees dangerous criminals and gun reform that penalizes your right to self-defense. How can we return to a society that has a safe and healthy relationship with guns as we had for most of our history? Believe me, I've heard every argument relating to gun control possible. I can show you how to defend your rights. Urgent, informed, and vitally important information for whoever owns a gun, or is thinking about owning a gun, or who cares about the preservation of our constitutional rights, in defense of the Second Amendment is a landmark book of enduring importance. Coming January 24th from Regnery. And we're back. All right. So, first, what I want to address is... Uh, a comment that I read on this thread, okay, that that uh, that Rothman posted, and this person says, "This is this is another reason why I will never use a publisher. Traditional publishers are such an effing scam. Lose your rights, lose most of your royalties. If you're dropped, lose your stories. We'll never traditionally publish." Now, look, I, I get that there is um, a lot of potential. I, 
I guess I'll call it bias on either side. If you're hardcore traditionally published, there's a lot of those folk who are like, I'll never indie publish. Or if you're completely indie published, you're like, I'll never traditionally publish. I understand that there's a bias there. There's kind of almost a religious thing going on here. It is. You know, it's it's like, you know, it's like nine millimeter verse 45, right? (laughs) But, um, but, but what I want to get people out of the mindset here. Um, and, and I think that you and I have brought this up in just numerous times, and that's that there is no one answer. No, we've we've and we've had episodes about this. And, and the thing is, guys, it's all business. And a lot of these guys that get like super hyper religious about indie only, indie only, trad pubs dead, trad pubs dead, indie's the future. Yeah, well, and then like you 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 hear all that, and you fast forward a year, and Amazon's jerking all these guys around, and they're all dependent upon Amazon. Because they have like a basically one failure point choke point to their entire business model. Yeah. Everything has flaws. Um, and traditional publishing, like I was saying before the break, it, it varies in quality in different publishing houses. Like I love my publishing house. Like I am at a publishing house that I personally really, really like them. And I've had I, good experiences with them. I love Bain. They've treated me, they've treated me better than, frankly, than, <laughs> than a guy like me deserves. Well, and I've heard, <laughs> I've heard people like, why doesn't Larry go independent? Because Larry could make so much more money. Maybe. Eh, maybe. And the thing is, I, then I would have to do all that other stuff or hire out all that other stuff. Yeah. Well, and, and in reality, in reality, that's what brings us to what the, the initial, the initial kind of. Well, there's another part of the that dishonest, too. the dishonesty of the original post, the hybrid part. I mean, that's why really big traditionally published authors this is why they end up going quote unquote hybrid. Yeah. Because they get to keep their traditionally published like status and what that means for them and what the publisher does for them. Well, I'll tell you money while also going on the other side. What a lot of these guys miss out is because they're looking at Amazon and thinking that's the entire universe of publishing. Yeah. It's not. It's one f- fraction of the publishing. It's a big, it's the it's biggest a huge, single yeah, it's a individual huge piece. thing. But like I've had guys who are like, they, they think that's the whole universe. And it's not. It's one part of it. And like they, they talk about, well, well bookstores are dead. Yeah. Mm, well, and in fact, an article came out towards the very end of December, or maybe it was the beginning of January, where Barnes & Noble is actually on the ups, up, on the upswing. Jeez, They're doing upswing. really, really well right now. Well, let me tell you, because the difference between my COVID royalty checks and my pre- or post-COVID royalty checks, where 90% of, 95% of the bookstores in America were closed down, were pretty astronomical. Yeah. Bookstores are still a they pretty matter. big deal, guys. They matter. So a lot of people say this, and a lot of people get all hyper-partisan religious, but a lot of these same guys who get all hyper-partisan religious, if presented with the opportunity to make money from the one they supposedly hate, would leap on in a heartbeat. There's a lot of guys who are like, indie forever, trad pub sucks, until they, if they got a trad pub contract offer with a good advance and a good deal, and they take it. Now, I'll admit that in the beginning, when I first started kind of my, my long and winding, crazy journey towards being a published author, um, my initial thoughts were, no, I'll never be independently published. Never. It's either, it's either traditionally published or nothing. Um, now I'm glad that I am traditionally published. I'm very glad. Uh, however, uh, especially these days I'm looking at it and I think, it, again, it, the question isn't one or the other. It's not a zero sum game. It's, oh, well, why not both? Yeah. It's kind of a, it's, like I said, guys, it's all business. Like 
I really I? like my publisher, but if I didn't like my publisher, we'll talk about horror stories here in a second, but I know guys that are at publishing houses where the publishing house changed from when they first got there. Yeah. Editorial change got worse. Uh, their business got worse, dumber, woke. A lot of publishing houses went really woke. One recently got bought by the communist Chinese. That's yeah, the, working splendidly, I'm sure. Yeah, Daw's a crap show right now. Yeah, there, so Daw, Daw went from being a respected publishing house, well, especially when we were younger. That was a very oh, respected man. publishing house. Oh, man. Oh, my gosh. Deal. It was a huge deal. Uh, yeah, but then you, got, you get bought by the PRC. Well, guess what, guys? <laughs> Stuff's going to get weird. And then you have all these different publishing houses. They change over time. Like, like I respect Tom Doherty a lot. Like oh, yeah. Level. No, he's actually a good dude. He's a good dude. Tom, I, I have met Tom Doherty many yeah. times. It's funny because like when I was doing the Sad Puppies thing, he was like, oh, you just hate Tor. It's like, no, I actually really like Tom Doherty. I was eating dinner with Tom Doherty <laughs> over the years during this, you know? Yeah. I, I know the guy uh, a little bit. I mean, we're not like buddies or anything, but I, I've eaten dinner with him many times over the years. Uh, I used to do book, um, whatever that big book expo thing in New York was every year. And I, um, I, BEA. BEA. He's a nice guy, and he's a he's an industry pioneer. That said, that his publishing house changed. Yeah. It changed a lot over the last decade. It went from being Tom's publishing house to being what it is today. And we try not to bag too much on other industries, but man, I like if they oh, offered. Let, let, let's, I mean, they publish stuff that we're like, eh. But yeah. they also they do publish some really good authors. Yeah, yeah very. I I know guys there. I'm friends with who are there. But if they were to come to me today and say, Larry, we'd like to offer you a huge contract. <laughs> no, not that they would anyway, because like the people who all do do run it like hate my guts on oh. a personal level. But there's oh, no I, way I would do business with them. I was very very close to publishing with them. Oh yeah, you had that one editor who really really liked. Yeah, you. yeah. It was it was in the YA side of the house. So okay, so Ragnarok. Okay. Oh yeah. So Ragnarok, they buy they buy residue, um, mostly thanks to a guy named Nick Sharps, who you and I both know. Yeah, great dude. dude, great freaking dude. dude. Um, he was just on the Steven Crowder show. Did you see that? No, yeah. Sharps was on Crowder. Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, rad. Oh, good for him. Um, Nick's a great guy. So anyway, um, he loved residue. He bought it. That's how he and I really kind of became close and became friends, um, and because of Lita's book reviews. But so he, he buys residue, um, they publish it and, and there's a weird host of issues. And, and I kept thinking, oh no, it, it, it's okay. It's okay. Um, I think mainly because I just wanted to be published. The first, the first issue was I never got a copy edit, which is weird. Uh, looking back hindsight being what it is, um, that should have been my first sign that crap was getting real. Um, and then after that, the day that the book released, that it, that they slated it to release, they said it was primed to release. Da 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 da. da. Um, it didn't. It released like a week later. Yeah. And sucks. so, so everyone that I talked to, everyone that was getting hyped for it on that day, because you know what? What what do we tell people that that first day, that first week? It matters so much. Yeah. That's going to establish like where you are in the pecking order, yeah. the sales charts. And and so all those people that were hyped and primed yep. couldn't buy it the first day. And if you can't buy it that first day, you're, you're prepped for it and you just can't, the chances of you going back and buying it again later reduce. They diminish. And so I got hammered there. Um, and then as time went on, you know... People started commenting to me, commenting to me. They're like, "Hey, uh, there's a lot of weird 
like typo errors in this. Like, oh, okay. So I started looking and yeah, again, came down to no copy editor, even though they told me that I had one. And then I'm at Gen Con one year and I find out that one, they're not paying royalties to people. And two, I find out that, um, that one of the guys, like one of the main guys was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble like with the accounting books and stuff. Like, I don't quite understand how it all works. And I said, well, I'm an accountant. I will look at them for you for free, which was a stupid decision on my part. It definitely should have been like, I'll do it for pay. Yeah, you should have. Um, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll get in contact with you. So, okay, sweet. A little bit goes by. I get nothing, nothing, nothing. I go back to him and I say, hey, did you want me to look at those accounting books, set up your chart of accounts, get everything squared away so that all this is easy for you? And he's like, um, no, no, actually, I think we've got it under control now. Look, if you say you don't understand how it works and then a couple weeks later, you're like, oh, I totally got it. You're lying. Yeah. Unless you hired somebody in the meantime, specifically for that job. Yeah. No. You're lying. So things went really, really bad. More and more came out that, that perhaps they were um, not being completely honest with how they were dealing with, with the finances of the business. Oh, that's such a... That's why businesses need checks and yeah. balances and accountability. Mm-hmm. And, and, and says, look, says the guys that have done auditing. <laughs> yeah. And, and look, I, I'm not, um, I'm certainly not perfect. You're certainly not perfect. We've both made mistakes within the accounting world. It, I mean, it's, it's a hundred percent casualty rate right, when it comes to this sort of thing. But, um, a lot of it has to do with intent and I'm not entirely convinced that the intent, um, wasn't, wasn't to malfeasance. Right. So anyway, they decide they're going to shut down and I'm like, okay, well, whatever. But before they actually shut down, I called them because they weren't doing anything for me. They, I mean, there were so many issues. They were behind on their royalties. There was all this stuff going on. So I called them and said, I'm revoking my rights because you're in breach of contract. And their response was, well, oh no, it's fine. Everything's cool. Um, I actually think that what the best thing we can do is actually just get book two out really quick. Uh, and, and, and I really think actually that, that residue would make a really good graphic novel. Now I don't disagree. Pay me. I don't disagree. (laughs) Uh, if someone came to me and said, I want to make a residue graphic novel and they were reputable, dude, pay me. And I'm all in because I actually, I, I, I agree a hundred percent. So I, I said, uh, no, because why, why am I going to give you another book yeah. when you haven't paid me for the first now, one? I've done a few things for free, but yeah. it's always a calculated move. Mm-hmm. Guys, don't ever just do something for the exposure. No, no. I mean, if you ever do anything for free, make sure it is a calculated marketing move you know or a calculated gamble. You know, it's, you know, what's better than exposure bucks, Larry. Real bucks? Real bucks. Oh, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I'm a fan of, uh, I found the more money I make, the more exposure I get. There, There is that. You know, it's it's weird, right? How exposure bucks tend to be like stapled on to real bucks. Yeah. Like, it's that, funny that's kind of how I like it. Yeah. So. It's funny. This guy had this thing about how like I'll never do traditional publishing. And so all our stories about how all these publishing houses screwing up and being horrible. Yeah. <laughs> now, but here's the interesting part. Um, I revoked my rights. Ragnarok uh, ended up selling all of its assets to another company called Outland, mm-hmm. which still exists, sort of. 
And um, an Outland approached me and said, hey, under new management, um, we're sorry about what happened over there. Would you be interested in signing a new contract with us for residue? I was like, well, what assurances do I have? And, you know, we went through the whole thing. Um, I said, yes, again, a calculated risk. I said, yes, went in and it was fine for a few minutes. And then they found, um, supposedly they found some, they unearthed some, some more malfeasance from the previous owners and they basically shut down their entire fiction line. So I talked with them and I said, okay, look, I get it. Totally cool. Like, in fact, if I were in your shoes and, and I really did uncover extra malfeasance that was costing me money, I'd probably do the same thing. I said, but here's the, I said, here's the rub. I said, I want all my rights back, all of it. I want all the rights back. I said, not only do I want all my rights back, um, I want like my cover. Like I want all of it. And they're like, oh, yeah, no problem. Now that was because I wasn't a dick. That was because I wasn't being a jerk to them. Well, and they're busy trying to escape liability. They're trying to escape liability. So I ended up getting all my rights back when the publisher went under, thus sort of invalidating this comment that, that we were just reading, right? Um, that was twice. That happened to me twice. Well, in fact, I was thinking because every other people, every other writer I know who had a some sort of business issue with their publisher got their rights back. I, I, I can't think of anybody who didn't. Now, I do know Maybe, I, I, but I can't think there have been cases and I do know of people that, that when, they've, when they've had a publisher that they've been with that has collapsed, um, their rights ended up in kind of a state of limbo and, and they couldn't quite get them back. Um, but more likely what I saw was they would be like one book into a three book series, the publisher would collapse and no one would want to take books two and three. That makes sense. Right. That makes sense. I get that. That is a calculated risk. But those are with small publishers. That's like Nightshade. Nightshade was a small publisher. That's Pyre. Pyre was a small publisher. Um, if we're talking Tor. Well, we'll see what's like what's Bane. happening with Daw right now. Daw is fairly large. Daw's fairly large. They're going they're undergoing some weird, weird crap. My conspiracy theory, money laundering. Uh, this is this is theory, total theory. and opinion. I'm for the record. Total theory, total opinion. <laughs> We're just throwing this out there. I mean, given who bought them, Communist Chinese Party. Communist Chinese Party. Uh, we were just we were just. This mm -hmm. is our opinion. Total opinion and guesstimating. We have yep. no information. I, I have I have a I have a tinfoil hat on right we now. We are making no allegations. No, none involving none. people who have hitmen. None whatsoever. Um, but. It does suck, right? Because so many of, of these very talented authors are in that boat, right? And, and they're worried. Now, the flip side of this. Um, well, like if Tony Weisskopf was to leave Bayon and somebody who, was, who I didn't like took over uh, and was doing stuff and they weren't doing business the way I like doing business, yeah, I could go do my own thing again. Sure. Uh, but like I said, guys, it's just business. I mean, our job as writers is to create the coolest thing we can and get it out there to our audience. And it's really just however you get it to your audience in the most effective way for your time and your efforts. Yeah. And except for the predatory hybrid, guys, that's <sighs> that's just a crappy way to get it out there. The the the, predat the predatoriness of this uh, of the original post that we read is yeah, um, we were starting to it's meander. A, it's a little frightening to me. Um. 
it seems pointed, it seems concerted to uh, and targeted to use the word hybrid in this regard, because that's not what this is. No, he's just selling services. Yeah. Well. Or Vanity Press, depending on how it's yeah. set up. Now, if a publisher on the side opens up a separate DBA that says, we are providing editorial services, layout services, and art services. You can buy them a la carte. Okay? Yeah. Totally great. fine. That's fine. It's but as soon as you services. but as soon as you say, I will accept money to offset my costs from you, the author, who I will then agree to publish, uh, then you're playing a shell Force game with crap. the truth. Yeah, that's crap. Yeah. And that's, also, that's actually, that's literally what my comment was, was this is complete crap or something also, like that. Also, from the accounting perspective, and this is like, there's that old joke about how no Hollywood movies ever make money. Right. Because it has like a back-end percentage deal with somebody. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what that means is if, if, if you are being paid by the person who's in control of the books, and the person in control of the books determines what percentage you're getting royalties from, and this is not contractually outlined in a clear and concise and intelligent way, then all they got to do is create fake expenses or or their legit expenses they're paying to themselves. So yeah. they're getting paid. So that's like the Hollywood thing is you just create like 10,000 little sub-companies that are all doing subcontracting for you and each one of those getting paid. They you they all belong to you in the same studio and the same people. Yeah. They're all getting paid. And then they're all, oh, well, we didn't make we. This $200 million movie didn't make a single dollar of profit, so you got no royalties. Suck it, dude. Sorry. Yeah. So the same kind of thing. So that's just dumb. That's why most real contracts are you get a percentage of the cover price. Yeah, of gross. If we sell X number of copies, you get Y percentage. Boom. The end. That's it. Now, the, the idea that- not that they can jack their salaries up to the point that there's any profit left over. and then, Oh, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, that's, that's dishonest crap. That's, Don't ever sign no. a contract like that. But look, the vast majority of the big, big, big publishing companies, they're going to be more or less honest in, in regard to this. Well, here's the thing. We don't, then the thing is, this is one thing where I think, because I've been on record before and I've said this on the air and I've said, I'll, I'll say it again. CIFWA is basically useless, right? right. CIFWA, Science Fiction Writers Association, crap organization. Used to be decent, gone to crap, just a political parley house of nonsense. One of the things CIFWA could do well, what they're supposed to do. What they're supposed to do is all our all of our contracts, all of us trad published authors have contracts that say we have the ability to audit yes. our books. Except no publisher, no, no, nobody ever wants to do that because they don't want to upset their relationship with their publisher by sticking auditors on them all the time. Well, and usually the burden of cost to hire said auditor yeah, falls upon the author. The so yeah. you would only do that if you think you're getting ripped off. Yeah. And you think you could actually get, you know, you, you can't get blood from an orange or whatever, you know, blood from a stone. So you, have, you got to make sure it's worth it. But one of the things that CIFWA could do is take a, every year, randomly pick one of their members' contracts and randomly audit a publishing house or two. Yeah. And just cycle through. And then every so many years, somebody, some one individual's royalties would be checked for honesty. Did you really sell X number of copies? Yeah. Did you really return this many copies? Did you really pay this much? This is what, oh, how much, oh there's a different discrepancy. Why is there? See, that's what auditing is for. Right. And that's something the CIFWA should do. The CIFWA mostly exists to be a bunch of wannabe Stasi agents telling each other, you know, ratting each other out to the Gestapo and doing their little I mean, snide, mean girl crap. I mean, if I had three names, that's what I would do. <laughs> Stupendous Stasi agent. But I only have two names. 
So I'm Portuguese. I could have like six if I oh, wanted. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I I I, th- I feel like we've spent quite a bit of time talking about how some of the the potential failings of the of the major publishing houses. Yeah. But I, well, I then, don't I don't want us to pretend that it's all roses and like chocolates on the on the indie side. Oh no, because we talk about like Amazon, like being being beholden to Amazon. A lot of these guys are. And that's what I've seen a lot of smart guys like really trying to diversify their business and diversify their distribution. They could try to build up their direct relationship with their fans so they're not dependent. That way if Amazon yep. does do something to them, they can go around and reach their fans. Or the other one, the recent one, the big controversy is Audible. Audible, yep. Uh, with like the Brandon Sanderson did a big thing recently about the the Audible on how, how much it pays people and uh, I'm not going to talk trash about Audible because I got I get I get paid really good. Well, I, I, gotta... I think it's, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's interesting. I, I think that specific topic and in, in how and how Brandon is trying to again diversify and trying to make sure that not all of his revenue is beholden to one single choke point. Yeah, um, well, which is what Brandon can do. If if you have the ability to diversify beyond where one person can choke off your business, then you're then you an should. idiot not to. Yeah, exactly. You're a fool, and he's not a fool. I mean, he, and he's got resources that most authors don't. Yeah. Now, now the interesting thing is, Brent again, Brandon does have all those resources, forty-two million of them to be exact, and it's a lot of resources. You know, he had tons of resources. Um, I mean, I'd take a tenth of that and be just fine. So he he is in the position where he can, he can make this stand, right? Where he can, where he can, um, lean on his fans and say, let's make a point. Yeah. Many authors can't do that. Right. Well, cause if you're just one author and they make like a small amount of money off you and you're like, I'm going to take a moral stand and not do business with this big mega corporation. I think they're predatory. Well, okay. Bye. They're yeah. There. I mean, I mean, Amazon, I, I believe some of Amazon's numbers are, um, if you publish with them, like on the ebook side, uh, if you're non-exclusive, it's 25%. If you're exclusive, it's 40%. Like that's a- I thought it was higher than, well, I don't know what it is, but it's been a long time since I looked. I have no idea. So it's, my point is, is that, and I'm not sure if those percentages are right. That I heard that recently. Yeah, but, I have no idea. But the reality is, even even let's pretend those numbers are right. From 25 to 40%, yeah, I mean- that fifteen percent gain is massive. Like that's a big deal. Going from yeah. twenty five to forty. It's anytime you have. It's just like social media. We've talked about this on the show before. Anytime that you can get corralled into one place where every other option dies off, and so the whole industry is beholden to one thing, you now work for them. You're not independent anymore. You're not right. stuck. That's why I'm looking at guys like Peter Nealon trying to like go direct to his fans or, or Nick Cole and Jason Onspock trying to go direct to their fans and right. building up that relationship. Smart. Smart. They're, they're doing well with it. Yeah. Now, the thing is, well, that's challenging for a lot of people to do. A lot of work. And that's why most most indie people are still going to be going through the same handful of giant mega, soulless mega corporations uh, to you know do this stuff. So I don't know. The, guys, there's not really a right answer on this. You can get screwed by a traditional publisher. You can get screwed by a mega corporation who's handling your indie stuff. Well, you can get, frankly, you can get screwed by yourself because you think you know everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Beware anybody who's like, like, this is the one true path because we all know guys who do this differently who make good livings at it. Now, the one thing of all of this that is not up for the debate 
I think. And that's the idea that um, paying a small press to publish your book, that's not a good thing. Yeah, we're all in agreement on that. I don't know, I don't know if anybody's going to come along and say that's a good thing. No. Even though I used one to my own advantage uh, but that was a different. Years ago. That was a different world then. It was a different world then, yeah. Because a lot of the resources we take for granted now didn't even exist back then. Well, and, and frankly, you were kind of a unicorn at the time. I was. I was. I was a weird Bigfoot kind of thing. Uh, I was a cryptid. And uh, also the, the technology was different too. You got to remember yeah. back in those days we had to like, you know, slaughter a robot to get on the internet. Yeah. It would scream at you as it died. Very different. Our kids don't even understand what I'm talking no, about. They don't. You know, but yeah, so it's a very different world back then. But yeah, so beware the vanity press, beware the predatory press, beware the small, the, the predatory small press, beware the places that don't have good business reputations and read your contracts. Yeah. And then if you, if you go indie, man, like that's the, that's the thing too. Like I was, when I, I went to, oh, I didn't talk about it much, but I went back in October uh, to 20 books. I think I've actually mentioned this on the air, but there was a whole thing where there were some authors there. It was like, yeah, I make a million dollars in sales. I was like, wow, that's really impressive. I spend $879,000 on marketing. Yeah. Okay. That hurts. Yeah. That's, you know, your, your margins are, your margins are in that regard are almost identical to TradPub. Yeah. So when people are like, Larry, why are you TradPub? Well, A, I like my traditional publishing thing. They get me great distribution and they make me a lot of money and they do a lot of stuff that I wouldn't normally do have to do myself. Yeah. And okay. So yeah, I keep a lesser percentage, but like, I'm, so I'm there at this thing with people who I make equivalent amounts of money to. I work less. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm like, and I, I'm not exactly a lazy guy. I mean, we've established that on the show. I've got a pretty good work ethic, but you, you guys see there's trade-offs to everything here. Yeah. And, and I, I think the big thing is don't, don't let yourself get cornered in just one aspect, no, you know, be, be adaptable enough to keep your, your eyes and your ears and your options open. You know what I mean? In the years I've been doing this, the industry has evolved. A lot. A lot. Oh, and I'm sure, in, so 15 years ago, it was an entirely different world. Five years ago, it was a different world. Five years from now, it's going to be different. Yeah. 15 years from now, who knows? We're going to be like eating rats, you know, living in the, living in, you know, avoiding the AI killer hunters. <laughs> I don't know what's going to, the little robot dogs are going to be looking for us. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, stuff changes. You got to be flexible. Sorry, Boston Dynamics. <laughs> yeah, those. I'm sorry. You ever see when they put a gun on those little dogs? Heck no, dude. I've seen. I've seen way too many episodes or way too many movies of variants of the Terminator to know that that a, is a bad a, idea. Uh, Brandon Herrera, the AK guy on YouTube, put a uh, <laughs> put a gun on one of those little robot dogs. It fell over a lot, but the general principle is kind of terrifying. Let's be honest. <laughs> nope. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. All right, guys, that's all the time we have for you today. Hopefully, hopefully we've kind of cleared some of the air and cleared some of the mystery and some of the terminology around this um, about what hybrid publishing actually is and people who are who seem to be trying to co-opt that term to obfuscate the truth of what they're actually doing. So don't fall prey to that. Predatory publishing is bad. Um, that's all the time we have for you today. This is the Writer Dojo, and we'll see you on the next one. Writer Dojo is Steve Diamond and Larry Correa. Produced by Jack Wilder and Bear and Hair Studios. Theme song, Word Mercenaries by Craig Nivo. 
New episodes come out every Wednesday wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm slash writerdojo, by leaving a five-star rating and review, and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on the Writer Dojo, email ads at writerdojo.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to questions at writerdojo.com. You gotta remember yeah. back in those days we had to like, you know, slaughter a robot to get on the internet. Yeah. It would scream at you as it died.